Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Recent results from the National Assessment of Educational Progress, often called the nation's report card, reveal the dire state of American education. The pandemic hit students hard, but it also presents educators and policymakers with an opportunity to rethink our schools. To discuss that, I brought back my colleague, Rick Hess. Rick is a senior fellow and director of education policy studies here at the American Enterprise Institute. He's also the author of several fantastic books, the latest of which is the recently released The Great School Rethink. Rick, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, good to be with you, man. Your new book is titled The Great School Rethink, not reset or reform. What does it mean to rethink American education? That, to me, sounds like a more expansive diagnosis or agenda than more iPads for the kids and smaller class sizes. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. Um, and, and it's also one that is less certain that I know from the second floor of AEI how to fix 100,000 schools serving 50-odd million kids. For me, the great rethink is real simple. We've been trying to uh, reform American education for pretty much my whole professional life. Uh, the strategy has been a bunch of smart people on the West Coast at foundations or in D.C. coming up with big, ambitious uh, capital letter agendas, no child left behind, race to the top, common core, uh, and then picking up a stick and trying to beat schools into compliance uh, in the hope that this will finally transform Horace Mann's 19th century schoolhouse, which was designed to make Catholic kids less Catholic, uh, into something that actually meets our needs in the 21st century. Turns out we've been just abysmal at this. Kids haven't learned more. Uh, teachers have rebelled. Communities have felt like they were being invaded by a bunch of self-impressed outsiders. So we've had 20 odd years of more or less frustration. What's different right now is the pandemic uh, turned a whole bunch of things upside down. For the first time, I think in decades, you actually see communities and parents who've got a feel that schools aren't meeting their needs. Their trust in schools has been either shattered or at least turned upside down. And they're saying, well, how do we make this work? The great rethink starts with the premise that what our schools are doing and what they were built to do isn't what we need, but we don't actually know how to solve the problems because we're not entirely sure what the problems are. We know kids aren't learning enough. We know that schools aren't providing kids the supports and the mentoring they need, but we're actually not real clear on why that is or what's wrong. So the great rethink starts by trying to figure out exactly what the heck the problem is before we rush off to start layering on solutions. So we aren't sure what the problem is, but do we know what the kids need? Is it different from what they needed decades ago? It's not even clear they need something different. It might be that we stop doing the things that they did need. Uh, you know, American tween, uh, America's tweens are now spending five hours plus a day on devices, a couple hours of social media, a couple hours of gaming. gaming. Teens are spending seven to eight hours on devices. Um, it might be that they actually need more time talking to mentors, more time actually doing things with friends and developing those relationships. 
we're not 100% clear. What we do know is that we have a really lousy grasp on what happens in schools. Parents saw this for the first time in forever during the pandemic. The, the most common email I got during the pandemic was parents saying, I had no idea. They're like, my kid was in school seven hours a day. They're now telling me they can learn all of this in 90 minutes of online. What was happening the other five and a half hours? And if you start actually trying to figure out where does the time go in a school day, what's happening, it turns out that this is actually the biggest mystery in American education. At least before the pandemic, there was a great deal of sort of deference to the school teacher. Is that that sounds like that deference may have eroded? I think so. You know what happened is you know, it, it's a kind of stuff that none of us really thought very deeply about. But school schools are you know schools are like Congress. Um, Americans think Congress is a mess, but they really like their representative. Um, only 20, 25% of Americans think American education is heading the right direction, but 75% of parents give their kids school in A or B. And that's that deference you're talking about. But what, what we, I think what we had taken for granted for generations was the custodial function of school. Look, if you're a parent and you take your kids to the bus stop and they get on the bus and they come home at the end of the day and they're safe and they have some friends and it seems like they learned something, if there's some teachers they like, you just kind of took it on faith. Anybody you can keep your kids safe and happy for eight hours, you've got a lot of confidence in. And I think what the pandemic did was it absolutely eroded that because suddenly parents were standing over a kid's shoulder at the kitchen table and they were seeing teachers with political flags in the background. They were seeing teachers who were taking lessons in ways at the places that they never expected. They were seeing that 90 minutes of instruction was they were told was a full day. You know, Los Angeles, the nation's second biggest school district, officially did a memorandum of understanding which said a full day for t teachers with a median salary of 80 grand is three hours. They didn't say, hey, you should be texting your kids and families once a day. They didn't say, try to get them on the phone and check in. They said, work three hours a day and we're calling it square. And families saw that lots of these Catholic schools managed somehow to reopen in fall of 20 and stay open uh, with no adverse health effects. Uh, they saw that things like learning pods and micro schools and online learning seemed to capture kids' imaginations and work well. As they have gone back to school, I think there's been a whole lot more inclination to say, is this working as well as I thought it was? And why do we have to do things this way? And these are questions that just never would have entered somebody's mind when they just figured, hey, my kid gets on the bus, my kid comes home, things are working okay. Before the pandemic, you could point to international rankings that would show American education simply wasn't working. But that didn't do much. People really didn't seem to care. The pandemic seemed to do a lot more to drive the message home. Is that your sense of things? You're exactly right, Jim. I mean, No Child Left Behind, part of the theory of action was we're going to test kids regularly in grades three to eight in reading and math. Uh, we're going to rank schools as whether they're making adequate early progress or not. All of these parents and communities are going to see the results. And if the kids aren't making AYP, if the schools are failing, there's going to be a rebellion. Well, it turned out that by about 2009, 80% plus of America's schools were failing, according to the, you know, the NCLB testing. The rebellion was not against the schools. The rebellion was all of these parents who said, we don't believe you, we believe our stinking eyes. 
And so what's happened when we have tried to use test scores as a mechanism to tell people schools are broken, they have consistently been skeptical, not of the schools, but of the test scores. And what's changed during the pandemic is it's not about the test scores, which have been abysmal, um, but it's about parents for the first time in generations feeling like they can't trust the schools to be there for them in the way they, they had long expected. Would you be surprised if 15 years from now, approximately the same share of American school kids go to their local public school and sit in a classroom all day with you know a teacher at the front in desks, neatly ordered, that that is will be the sort of baseline American educational experience in you know in 2035 in 2040. I wouldn't be terribly surprised, but I'd be somewhat surprised for 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 this reason. I think you know a lot of listeners are probably familiar that the last couple of years had seen this explosion of school choice legislation, and partly that's been a consequence of this pandemic. Um, what's happened is school choice going back to the first voucher program in Wisconsin in ninety. Charter School of Minnesota in 1991, these programs were marketed explicitly to help low-income families uh, that were trapped in awful, unsafe schools get their kids out. That was the slogan. And what this said to lots of middle-class and suburban families was school choice isn't about you. It's not intended to help your kid. Just do it because it's the right thing. And what changed during the pandemic was suddenly school choice became about solving problems, not only for people trapped in lousy schools, but for folks who didn't like how their schools were handling masking, for folks who were concerned about what was in the school library. They were for families who were concerned that the long-term sub teaching algebra didn't know what they were doing and the family could get something better online. So what you've actually seen is school choice morph from something which was akin to Medicaid, um, a program intended to help out the folks trapped in the worst circumstances, to something much more like Social Security or Medicare. In these states, you're seeing a thundering of universal school choice programs, and particularly the education savings accounts programs, which say it's not just choose moving your kid from school A to school B, but we're going to create the opportunity, if you think it's appropriate, to do more to customize your kid's experience. And that's around kids in high school who want to get career technical education. That's around parents frustrated with what's being done for kids with special needs. Uh, that has to do with, you know, if you're not excited with what your district's doing on history or civics, if you start to put this stuff together, the share of American kids sitting in that default local schoolhouse absolutely seems like it might start to shrink from 85, 90% to something smaller, whether something smaller is 70% or something smaller is 45%. That's where I, I think, you know, the story is very much still to be written. In that scenario, where you have this shrinkage in public schools, will that create the competitive pressure that will make those schools better? Or am I just being too much of a market guy about this? Ever since I first came to AEI, it's interesting, right? You look around the halls, and we don't talk about telecom choice or trucking choice or airline, right? It's always deregulation. It's market construction. And... Obviously, giving consumers a choice of cable cable bundles is part of telecom dereg, but it was also very much about bottlenecks. Um, when you're talking about trucking and airports, about airport gates and slots and pilot rules, and the, what we have missed, partly because as school choice has been Medicaid for so long, is we have treated um, giving 
families who have been stuck in awful circumstances more choice, we have treated that as if it is somehow analogous to market construction. And it's really not because I did a book 20 years ago uh, for Brookings on this called Revolution of the Margins. And nothing <laughs> in fundamental ways, not a lot has changed. I pointed out that if you're the principal of a school in Milwaukee, Wisconsin back then, or Cleveland, which had a voucher program, and you lost kids to a voucher, it had zero impact on your professional prospects. There was nothing dinged in your file about having fewer kids. Nobody even knew if they left due to attrition or voucher or something else. Um, it meant if you lost enough kids, you might not have to replace a couple of departing teachers. It meant your cafeteria would be less crowded. If you competed effectively, you worked the neighborhood, you recruited, your enrollment was up by 50 the next year. You got no plus in your file. There was no compensation differential. It did nothing for your professional prospects. It might mean you had to hire a couple more teachers and stick them out back in a trailer. And it might mean you had to double shift your lunch. So one of the realities is that choice is embedded in a system of public education, which itself does not reward superintendents or principals or school boards or educators for engaging in healthy competitive context, uh, conduct. Um, it's just kind of a thing that happens. So it's a little bit like saying you're working in a fixed price sector and then saying, if more people choosing your product, what changes? Unfortunately, not much. This doesn't mean choice. This doesn't mean markets don't work in education. It means markets only work if you actually create the circumstances where there's supply side response, where folks who are doing their work effectively are able to get rewarded and acknowledged and, and compensated and promoted for competing effectively. Um, right now, that's not the case in the bulk of public education. And are there any green shoots of hope that that will change? Uh, there are. I mean, one of the interesting things, for instance, about the pandemic is as parents saw what was going on, you saw a lot of, quote unquote, anti-racist stuff that had started to emerge in twenty after 2014, had been going on in schools, hadn't really gained much awareness. You saw parents aware of that. And in response, you started to see both organizational of parental advocacy groups like Parents Defending Education and Moms for Liberty. You also saw outfits like the Great Hearts Academy, charter school operations started in Arizona, start to offer um, a virtual, uh, more traditional values-based American civics curriculum. Um, parents are choosing that, not because they hate their school as a whole, perhaps, but because they're concerned about part of what's happening when it comes to how kids are being taught about American history. That's the kind of supply-side response that wasn't wasn't in evidence when choice was really about letting kids in unsafe urban schools escape to a safer alternative. But as you start to see parents given more control and more flexibility about the parts of schooling that aren't working, you start to break up this kind of um, really the cartel and create more opportunities for parents and suppliers to find each other. In the book, you write, schools weren't designed what they're asked to do today. What do you mean by that? So, you know, you know, um, I mean, I mean, it's a truism when we think about um, the American economy. I mean, you write about this as well as anybody. Uh, the companies have a lifespan. Um, the human infrastructure, the technology, the logistic backbone of a hugely successful company in 1975, because they get successful, they were get used to doing certain things. And when the world changes, it's hard for them to keep up. Well, school, Horace Mann launched the common school movement in the U.S. in the 1830s and 1840s because we had a lot of Catholic kids 
coming from Ireland and Southern Europe and Eastern Europe. And common schools were built to be a place where a lot of these kids would learn or would be literate. So they would read the King James Bible so they'd be less Catholic. There were a whole bunch of design features built into this. They feminized the teaching force because that was a source of cheap labor. Uh, they, they managed these teachers from on high to ensure that the teachers would teach the right things. When you saw the explosion of universal education um, in the early 20th century, remember in 1900, only about one American in 16 finished high school. Um, the idea of high school graduation being a normal thing is a post-World War II phenomenon. Most Americans were only going to get a little bit of education. As you universalize that, the goal was to keep kids out of the labor force. So the schools were really built to be custodial places. What we want schools to do today is prepare kids for a knowledge economy. In the most diverse you know, industrial nation the world has ever seen, we wanted to cultivate every kid's gifts so that they can pursue career or college. Nobody's ever done this. And the idea that these school buildings with the school staffing model that was put in place between, say, 1840 and 1930, and then institutionalized the collective bargaining agreements is like the model that we can make do this seems extraordinarily naive on its face. One of the reasons that the AI question becomes so interesting is because we have been cheerleading the breakthrough potential of technology in education since the pencil. If you know, if your listeners want to laugh, they should go back to read some of the 19th century stuff about because kids can now erase their mistakes. It will totally change the psyche of learning. They will no longer fear to go. Um, in the 1920s, the radio was going to be the classroom of the air. Uh, there, the television was supposed to upend education. And then over and over and over again, the real question has always been what we did with this. If you used a calculator, but it worked on the assumption the kids no longer needed to do computation because they had a calculator, it turned out you were doing hugely destructive things to your kids' understanding of mathematics. On the other hand, if you understood that kids needed to learn computation, but that the calculator could be a valuable tool when they started to do trigonometry and calculus, then you were actually equipping them with both the core knowledge they needed, but then also the tools that would allow them to go further faster. Question for me with AI, is how are we going to understand the challenges and are educators actually going to know what the heck they're doing and get the support they need to do it well? Last question for you. If you were on a plane flight, a long plane flight, you were sitting next to, uh, let's say, let's say a blue state governor and you guys start talking education, what would you want that governor's takeaway to be? You know, that, that Rush had it right. You know, R R Rush famously saying that, you know, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. We have done that mostly with the way we've staffed American schools. You know what New York City's spending on education this year? $38,000 per kid. They still don't have enough slots in the summer to accommodate half the families that want to enroll the kids. Where are those dollars going? Well, the biggest thing that we have chosen not to decide over the last half century is we have nearly doubled the number of teachers in American schools relative to the number of kids. So we had a teacher for every 27 kids in 1973. We have a teacher for every 15 and a half, every 16 kids in 2023. If we had made a different decision, if instead of adding a million and a half bodies, by the way, we, didn't, we can't train enough talented teachers to fill those slots. So districts are constantly searching for more bodies. This also means hundreds of thousands of long-term subs 
are standing in front of rooms, not doing anything. If we had made a different choice, if we had done, say, what South Korea or Japan does, which is put those dollars into quality, we could be much more selective on hiring. We wouldn't need to train nearly as many people. And average teacher pay in the U.S. today, average teacher pay, median teacher pay, would be $140,000 a year. Average teacher, median teacher pay, according to the National Education Association today, is about 66.5. And teachers feel frustrated and overworked and underpaid. We could instead be at 140,000 because we would be paying benefits to one and a half million less teachers. We've chosen not to do that. We've opted for quantity over quality. We've added kids since No Child Left Behind when, when George W. Bush became president. We've added kids at 5% at five rate. We've added central office bureaucrats at a 93% rate. If we had put those dollars instead into services for kids or instruction, that'd be about another $10 billion a year that would actually be in classroom serving kids. So the biggest problem, I think, is we have gone on an automatic pilot default where we have kept adding adults and adding managers, regardless of whether they're doing the kids any good. Folks might ask, has this changed during the pandemic? Since 2019, schools have lost one to one and a half million kids. They've added 32,000 more teachers even as schools are complaining about a staffing shortage. We have allowed ourselves to drift into a place where we have made it functionally impossible to find and hire enough talented adults to do the jobs we need to do in schools. And we have done that not out of conscious design, but because we have been, we have, you know, been drifted along behind the let's placate the unions and let's avoid any tough decisions. And I think we need to rethink that. Rick, as always, fantastic. Hope to have you on again soon. Thanks, bud.